Pastor Xavier Reese and the simple truths to investments yielding eternal dividends. God knows your heart for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The text of the rich man in the Lazarus here, the beggar, is to illustrate who really is a wise investor in spiritual investment. You can be the poorest and the most spiritual and be the wealthiest and hit it for hell in a fast track. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. What makes a good investment? Real estate? A 401k? Stocks? Or maybe an insider trading tip? Today, Pastor Xavier investigates the wise stewardship principles of the world and applies them to spiritual things. We'll be joining him in the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 16, for today's Simple Truths study titled, be a wise investor. There are many individuals in the world who are admired and looked up to for the wisdom and ability to create money, wealth. The three most richest are the following. Warren Buffett, number one, 62 billion. Carlos Slim, Elu, a son of a Lebanese immigrant, is worth 60 billion. And then Bill Gates III of Microsoft, worth 58 billion. People are always flocking to be around them. They admire them. They just think they're the highest of them. Now, do you know what these three richest men in the world have in common with the three poorest people in the world? First, they're all going to die. Second, they're going to leave everything behind. The equalizer. <laughs> what we want to do is look at being a wise investor in the kingdom of God. Now, the basic principle of investing is that you want to receive the greatest return with the lowest risk. And to do that, secondly, you want to diversify your investments so that in the event that something happens, you don't lose all your eggs or in one basket. We have been studying all of the things that um, have been taking place in one Sabbath day as Jesus is headed for Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. It began in chapter 14, verse 1, and it ends in chapter 17, verse 10. All of that is one day, if you go through the Gospel of Luke and mark it. Let me just kind of show you so we build up so you see where this text is headed for. In chapter 14, verse 1 through 14, Jesus was invited, remember, by the Pharisee on the Sabbath day. They had plotted a man with dropsy to see if he was going to heal him. He healed him. And then he turned around and he rebuked the Pharisee for, uh, well, first the guests for looking for the best seats. And then the Pharisee for inviting only those who could repay him in kind. And told him that he should have uh, invited the, um, the less fortunate, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And then in chapter 14, 15 through 24, Jesus then gave a parable of that great supper. And he invited some, and they all gave excuses. I have oxen to try. I have land to, to go see. I have a wife, uh, you know, I just married. And they were lame excuses. And so he told his servant uh, to go get those in the streets, the highways, and uh, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind again. And those invited and rejected would not taste of his supper. And then in 14, 25 through 35, Jesus then spoke of, to the multitudes the cause of being a disciple. And that sometimes it even causes our families because often when people accept the Lord in other countries, other cultures, they are persecuted or just cut off completely as part of the family. And so he says, Access your cause by the illustration of a tower. Consider the cause, what it's going to 
take to build it and finish it, or if not, like people at war, they attack you, consider if you can defeat them, or if you should make a peace treaty. And then in 15, 1 through 32, uh, all tax collectors took the uh, announcement of Jesus to hear as near, let him hear. They came close to hear him, but the Pharisees began to murmur against Jesus because he was receiving them and eating with them and forgiving them. Which, of course, um, he gives them um, the parable in three parts of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. And he rebukes the Pharisees. Heaven rejoices over one sinner. Repentance. And then in 16, 1 through 13, Jesus has just spoken to his disciples. You see the multiple disciples, the Pharisees in the background, uh, about this unjust steward who was busted for stealing from his master. And he recalls him, gives him time to hand over the books, but he arranges preparations by cutting down the bill of others. And when the master saw what he did, he commended the shrewdness of this unjust steward. Not his dishonesty, his shrewdness. Even though he ripped them off, he realized, you're pretty shrewd. It wasn't Jesus who commended the shrewdness of, of, of that. But then Jesus makes the application to us. And then in 14 through 18 here of chapter 16, the Pharisees who were lovers of money hearing this stuff knew that Jesus was talking about them. And they turned their nose up to him. And he rebuked them because much of their gain was dishonest. And they weren't doers and obedient of the law. They would always circumvent the law. They were just like him. In all these things up to this point, two things are present in all these teachings of Jesus. First, the need of repentance to enter the kingdom of God, accompanied with those who were rejecting to enter the kingdom of God, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then secondly, the importance and prominence of the place of money and wealth to those who do not know God and need also the Christian to realize that he's to be a faithful investor in the kingdom of God while here on earth. In fact, I didn't give you the punchline. Listen to the punchline of every one of these things that I gave you. In 1414, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Spiritual investment. 1424. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Spiritual investment. Bad one. 1435. He who has a near, let him hear. The disciples were listening. The multitudes were listening. They were coming. The Pharisees, the scribes, were turning away. 15, 7, 10, and 32. There's joy in heaven over one sinner. The lost sheep. The lost coin. The two lost sons. One was saved, the other one remained lost. In 16.9, And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into the everlasting home. Punchline. The everlasting home. We're here for a little while. Pilgrims, sojourners. And then in 16.15, You are those who justify yourselves, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, before men, but God knows your heart, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This last one with the unjust steward is a direct, immediate connection to being a wise investor for the kingdom of God. The text of the rich man in the Lazarus here, the beggar, is the climax to all the preceding material to illustrate who really is a wise investor 
in the true riches in 16.11. And it unfolds for us here in a threefold movement. First, you have the two men in life, 19 through 21, the two men in life. Then you have the two men after death in 22 to 26. And then you have the third movement, the two regrets in eternity, 27 through 31. It begins with the two men in life, 19 to 21. Notice in 19, the rich man is given to us. He is identified by a social position. There was a certain rich man, one of many of that day. And the word rich there is wealthy, having an abundance of everything. We've looked at it before. Of the ten times that appears in Luke, nine of them are given by the mouth of Jesus. He has much to say about the poor. And this man had all the, I mean about the rich as well as the poor, but this man had all he needed. This man uh, had the ability to buy anything he wanted. He never said, well, how much? He just, he just bought it. He had all kinds of money. He obviously was a good investor of his generation, even as the parable of the unjust steward, his shrewdness. Well, nothing is said about whether he gained it honestly or dishonestly, uh, but much of the world of Rome was corrupted, and even the majority today, in our day, those who make money, uh, there's few that are very uh, honest and have integrity. Remember one thing. What is legal is not always ethical. Okay? So when people say, well, I, we did it all according to the law. What does that mean? The law is like a rubber band. It depends which way you pull it. We as Christians live by what's right and wrong. What's ethical. Not just what's legal. Abortion is legal. But it's not moral or ethical. Right? He is described by his luxurious dress, who was clothed in purple and fine linen. The rich man here of this purple material was dye of a of purple fish or of a species of shellfish, so it costs a lot. Had to be extracted, had to be manufactured, all that. And this is the color of elitism and also of royalty. It was the color of Rome, it's the color of, of the Catholic Church, uh, much wealth. Okay? So when people saw him, you saw someone with that color, whoa. The rich man wore fine linen also, made of, from uh, bisous, they say, a very costly and delicate soft material. There was the white and there was the off-white, almost like a yellow. And so this uh, declared you were high fashion. You know, you're up to date. You were, you were in with all the, uh, the latest fashion and hairdressers and dress and the whole thing. So uh, this is where the man lived. Now, there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself, as we will see as we move through this. This is not a bash on people with money. That's not what it's about. The focus is on a spiritual investment that's a priority. Now, notice he is depicted by his great feast. He fares sumptuously every day. So the rich man delighted himself in a flamboyant way. I mean, he um, splendidly, magnificently is what the word says. Um, he was over the top on everything, you know, and his parties were thrown. I mean, everything was decorated, and it was just lavish. It was just a bunch of people. It was just the best thing, and uh, you know how it is. And by the way, he, um, he feasted, it says, every day, daily. So when you live like this, you've got a lot of cash. The rich man, without doubt, had gourmet food, the most exotic of the day. Here you come to the table, and it's abundance and variety, and all this. What's this? I've never seen this. And you come up by and say, oh, that's good. And he walks by and says, $1,000 an ounce, baby. Impressive. The rich man probably had many servants presented his guests and the food and these great feasts and tending to him as well as the others. And they were probably also dressed nice, and they had the latest of things of uh, dishware and 
Uh, people are impressed as they're walking around. And that's just the way opulence is. There's nothing wrong with you having a Mercedes, nothing wrong with you being in a nice neighborhood. But why is it that I do it and how do I do it or what? All of that as a Christian, I have to take into consideration. Notice the beggar Lazarus then comes into view here, verse 20 and 21. He's identified also by his social position. But there was a certain beggar. The word but is a contrasting conjunction. There's a chasm between these two. This places him in the sharp contrast to the rich man in the place of poverty. The man was one of many beggars, a certain beggar. And the word beggar simply indicates a person destitute of wealth, uh, position, influence, or power. He has, he has absolutely nothing. Nine of the ten times uh, come from the mouth of Jesus when this word is used. Notice he was one who begged for alms to survive, uh, to live from day to day, uh, describing the horrific poverty. Um, I, I've never known anything like that. I've known people who, who have uh, been poor, but not this poor. He also is identified by his personal name, which is different now, Lazarus. The name Lazarus means whom God helps. Come again? We're going to find out he's a believer. And his name means whom God helps, and he's in poverty. See, because there's some people in the Christian community who tell you that if you really have faith, you will be wealthy, healthy. Name it and claim it. And that's evidence of your spirituality. Nothing can be further from the truth. You can be the poorest and the most spiritual and be the wealthiest and headed for hell on a fast track. What a seeming contradiction to his social position from human perspective. His name comes from the Hebrew name Eliezer. Now remember, he's going to be in the bosom of Abraham. How interesting, Abraham had a servant named Eliezer. Notice the fact that his personal name is stated is different. So many believe that this is a story, a true story, not a parable. I believe that also. First, because it's not called a parable. Second, because a personal name is used and in no other parable are personal names ever used. Jesus is going to give us information here that is not fictitious. It is absolute true revelation about something that they had no idea about prior to this teaching as Jews. Notice he, Lazarus, is described by his inability to care for himself, full of sores who was laid at his gate, the rich man. His physical condition is indicated by the phrase full of sores. It means a uh, his entire body was just covered with ulcerated openings and blisters and, 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 and huge uh, sores that scabbed over and I'm sure dirty and I'm sure it smelled. And uh, if you ever go to Israel with us, you can go outside the old city, out of the Damascus gate, you'll find many like this with open sores and horrific uh, skin conditions and other things that are they're begging. Notice his... Um, Vulnerable state is declared who was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate. Someone would just carry him someplace and just drop him off at that location. Someone placed him here at the rich man's gate. 
His clothes torn, tattered, smelling, oozing. Just drop him off there. He is depicted in a very dehumanized manner. Look at verse 21. Designed to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. It's like you waiting outside a restaurant, um, waiting for the scraps for the people that are eating in there. That, that was his highest goal for the day. Often they would take the bread to wipe their fingers, take the heel or whatever. They, they didn't have no knives and forks. They ate with their hand, they grabbed some bread and wiped it, and then they would throw it to the ground, and the house puppies would eat it. He, he's hoping to get that. Plus, notice he's having to deal with the, the roaming dogs. Moreover, the dogs came and they licked his source. The word moreover, perhaps would be better translated, nevertheless, notwithstanding. I mean, he's having a hard time. He's hoping for food and these pesty dogs. You know, have you ever been somewhere where there's a lot of flies and, you know, just over and over again. But at the same time, though the dogs were a nuisance, as they licked his source, he might have got some relief from them also. We have no idea what led to his condition, but it is a horrific condition. The material things do not make us a Christian, but they can cause us to be carnal and unspiritual. Do I possess things or do things possess me? That's the question I have to ask myself as I've walked through life these 40, 40, 41 years in Christ. Am I covetous rather than content? If so, then I will never be satisfied because hell and destruction are never full, neither the eyes of man are satisfied. Am I trusting in my money instead of God? However small or large the amount of money I have, the amount really is not the issue. If I am trusting in that, then I'm truly poor, spiritually speaking. Listen to Paul the Apostle Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says, Not that I speak in regards to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In everywhere and all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to be bound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And so as believers, we thank God for what God gives us, what we have, we're good stewards. But we don't rely or serve him simply because of what we have. Do I take others into consideration and give and help as the Lord leads me, not as people tell me? There's the key. Do I do it to be seen? Do I do it so people feel indebted to me and in such a way that they feel indebted? Do I do it to impress people, to influence them, that I'm a kind person? Or do I do it out of God's agape love and love for my fellow man? Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 38. He says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You reap to what you sow. You cast your bread on the waters. Ecclesiastes says it may come back to you. It's a spiritual principle we don't understand. But certainly it shouldn't be a motivation for giving. That's carnal. The two men in life lived in opposite economic levels on earth. What a chasm between them here. 
But the second movement, there's a dramatic change. The two men after death, 22 to 26. Notice in 22, the time for the beggar Lazarus to die came. And um, Lazarus took his last breath. So it wasn't the beggar died. We're not told if, if he died out of the complications of his ulcerated body. We're left to our own imagination if he died alone. Most likely didn't have family. Uh, so most likely they took his body and they cast it out to the valley of Hinnom where the trash dump of the city and the fire never died and the worm, the, the fire never quenched and the worm never died. Jesus used that to depict the ultimate sentence for all unbelievers in the lake of fire. Now notice Lazarus was instantly ushered to Hades. And it was, he was carried by the angels to the Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is identified as Hades in verse 23 for us. And as we move through, it'll start developing and we'll touch the other aspects of the Hades and Sheol. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, if you remember the two thieves, they both cursed him and one changed his mind, repented. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 23, 43, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was speaking about that part of Hades and Sheol called the bosom of Abraham, the place of comfort, he called it paradise, which he would descend down to preach to those who had died in faith. And then, as he did, he would scoop them up, as Colossians 2.15 tells us. He made a public display of all those demons. They couldn't stop him. And he emptied Sheol, the bosom of Abraham. Paradise, the place of comfort. And he ascended up on high, as Ephesians 4, 8, and 9 says that he not only ascended, he descended, but he ascended up high above all things. And so Jesus transferred paradise, the bosom of Abraham, to the third heaven. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 2, 4 tells us he was caught up to the third heaven, paradise, and he heard things not lawful to utter. So now, the instant a person dies who's a believer, they are instantly present before the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. The minute a non-believer dies, they are instantly present in Hades, only one compartment now, in torment, waiting for the white throne judgment. At the rapture, we will receive our glorified bodies, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. So I die, I'm instantly present. My body goes to the ground. Cremation will do in 30 seconds what the dirt will do in 30 years. And when Christ returns for his church, we will receive our glorified bodies. As those loved ones come down, descend, we go up with the bodies that are glorified, and then we go back to the heaven with the Lord for seven years while the tribulation is going on here. So Hades today is where the unsaved people go and are eternally separated from God until that white throne judgment when the books will be opened and God will judge them. There is no second opportunity to repent or to be saved once you die. Anybody who gives you that hope is a liar and a deceiver. It is appointed unto men to die at once and after there's a judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. Pastor Xavier Reese and the simple truths of a Heavenly Father that always continues to lovingly seek after us, regardless of the state we're in. And you can hear this message again anytime online 
By simply selecting today's date at the radio listings link, you'll find at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But there's still much more to come right here next time as well. However, in the meantime, you can always pick up your own copy of this message. And the title to ask for is, Be a Wise Investor. It's available on CD as usual for only $4. Once again, you'll be asking for the message titled, Be a Wise Investor, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing, Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please be sure and include the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This information is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. Are your material goals causing you to be spiritually bankrupt? More on the fleeting value of earthly riches on the next Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 